I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Hal McCoy has covered more than 7,000 Major League Baseball games. That's a lot of rain delays, pitching changes, and tight deadlines. And for Hal, a lot of wonderful memories, too. Oh, he has stories. We're going to hear some great ones from a writer who is synonymous with the Cincinnati Reds. Hal has been covering the Reds since 1973. Bench, Morgan, Rose, Perez, the Big Red Machine. Hal was there when one of the game's greatest teams roared five decades ago. And he's been with the Reds, highs and lows, ever since. What do you say? Let's go out to the old ball game with the Hall of Famer. Hey, Hal, welcome to Press Box Access. I'm so happy that you're joining us. It's just a thrill. Thanks for having me, Todd. I'm looking forward to it. Long time no see. Yes, yes. Uh, I, I want to tell you right up front that there are no smoking walls in this tavern. You can fire up one of your favorite Monte Cristo white label cigars. There you go. You got one fired up. I'm not going to tell not going to tell the state law folks or the Smokey the Bear. You can just burn that thing away. So. Well, I I don't light it in the house. Uh, my uh, wife uh, forbids that. Uh, I had a sunroom built uh, that was supposed to be uh, my smoking room, and after it was built, my wife said, "That's too nice. Back out in the garage." So <laughs> that's where we always end up. Back in yeah, the garage. <laughs> exactly. Well, how we first met, I think, in the late 1980s, and uh, it's just a thrill for me to reconnect because you're one of the all-time great baseball writers, Hall of Fame baseball writer. I will ask you this, though, Hal. Is this the real Hal McCoy, or is this Harold Stanley McCoy Jr.? Okay, I'm quitting the show right now. <laughs> Nobody is allowed to use the name Harold. That My father... Uh, told my uh, mother not to name me after him, and she did anyway. And I hate the name. Uh, when I was a kid, I went by the name of Bubby. I, I, Bubby? Bubby, B-U-B-B-Y. Uh, until uh, Bubby Brister was a quarterback, and then I dropped that too. But uh, the only person who ever called me Harold was Ritter Colette, my old sports editor at the Dayton Journal-Herald. And he only did that when he got mad at me. <laughs> so how did you become Hal? Uh, that's a that's a great story. When I played Little League Baseball, uh, I played in an All-Star game, and the Akron Beacon Journal was there, and I happened to get lucky and hit a game-winning home run. And the photographer from the Beacon Journal uh, came up to me and asked me my name, and I said, Harold McCoy, and he misheard me and thought I said Hal, so the cut line in the uh, newspaper was Hal, and uh, I liked that and picked it up, and I've been Hal ever since. That's tremendous. Yeah. I, you know, that is great. I know. So you're, know. A, so you're a mistake. I am a mistake. <laughs> In more than one way. More than one way. <laughs> well, you know, all these sports writers, we're all damaged goods, so we're yeah. all mistakes in our yeah. own ways. So. Yeah, exactly. Well, Hal, Harold, Hal, I'm going to stick with Hal because that's all, all right. I know. Hal, yes. you certainly you certainly made a name for yourself all those years at the Dayton Daily News covering the Reds. You're still writing about baseball. In 2002, you were honored by the National Baseball Hall of Fame as a member of the J.G. Taylor Spink Award for meritorious contributions to baseball writing. Meritorious, what a word, right? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> What's it mean? I, I thought it was you were, an insult. <laughs> Just assume the worst. Wow. You were inducted into the National Sportscasters and Sports Writers Association Hall of Fame 
Uh, you were the Cincinnati chapter chair of the Baseball Writers Association 22 times. You were the Baseball Writers National President 1997. You've been covering the Reds since 1973. Big Red Machine, Hall of Fame players, Pete Rose Game One Scandal, World Series games, great moments. How many games, Hal? How many games have you covered in your career? Well, uh, just counting the Reds, uh, before I covered the Reds, uh, I had about 10 more years of uh, writing stories. But baseball stories alone, uh, the Daily News estimated a couple of years ago that I had done like 25,000 stories on baseball and, <laughs> and covered about and covered about 7,000 games. And uh, I always told my wife I was going to keep doing it until I got it right. Oh, my God. You must hear the national anthem in your sleep. Oh, that's a standard. That's a standard on my iPad, iPod. <laughs> 25,000 stories, 7,000 baseball games. I mean, were you there when Abner Doubleday came up with this thing? Uh, I wasn't there, but I think I covered uh, Harry Wright, the original owner of the Cincinnati Reds. <laughs> 1869, I think that was. In all seriousness, Hal, what when people ask you what your career's been like, what do you tell them? What What's it been like to be a baseball writer all these years? Well, I always tell people that uh, I love three things in life uh, other than my family. Uh, I love writing, I love baseball, and I love to travel. And I got to do all three, and I got paid for it, too. So uh, uh, to me, that's what it was all about. Yeah, you think about that, right? When you get paid to do what you love, exactly, that's, that's just like a gift. Yeah, I know, I know. I've never had a real job. That's why I tell my wife, I've never had a real job, but I've never had to get one. Well, you've been writing about it better than anyone since 1973 as a full-time beat guy. So in 73, you choose to cover the Reds instead of the Bengals. That sounds like something a judge would ask you. <laughs> <laughs> so you go into the locker room in 1973, and you inherit a team with quite a collection of talent. I mean, we're talking all-time talent. Rose, Bench, Morgan, Perez. What was it like to be around that clubhouse on a daily basis? I was in total awe. I mean, to see walk in and see those guys. And uh, Earl Lawson, who turned out to be uh, my mentor, was covering the Reds for the Cincinnati Post at the time. Uh, what a great guy. He took me aside like the first day or two and said, kid, you follow me, listen to what I say, do what I do, keep your mouth shut, and I'll teach you how to do this job. And he did. And for a long time, I followed him around like a puppy dog, kept my mouth shut, he introduced me to uh, everybody and kind of took me under his wing and uh, uh, made me anything I am right now. And I'm uh, forever, forever indebted, indebted to Earl for doing that for me. That's quite a quite a, an act of kindness for a, a reporter at another paper to take a kid under his wing and say, you know, follow yeah. me. That's why I have always tried to uh, help anybody that came along uh, uh, covering the Reds or, or, or just starting out uh, as a beat writer. Uh, even, you know, for uh, uh, other teams coming in out of town, uh, I always helped them in the Reds clubhouse because I remember what Earl did for me. Right, right. Very nice, very nice. So the Reds have all these players, Rose, Bench, Morgan, Perez, on and on. You said you're in awe. 
What was it like with the egos in that locker room? What was it like just dealing with them as a reporter, interviewing them? Uh, any favorite anecdotes about just covering that type of clubhouse? Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you're talking about the egos, and it was amazing how Sparky Anderson uh, managed all those egos. And uh, Tony Perez was probably the leader in that clubhouse because he knew how to put down all those guys and put them in their place and keep their egos in place. But one of my favorite stories is what... Absolutely. You know how Pete Rose was. Uh, you go talk to him and open your notebook and ask one question and he would fill it for you. But uh, I found out very early that Rose and Bench did not like each other very much. Hmm. And if I went in and talked to uh, Rose first and then I would go talk to Bench, I would get very short, cryptic answers. Hmm. And uh, if I talked to Bench first, he would be great. And, of course, you know, Rose, you can talk to him at any time, so he didn't care. But I figured out you better not let Bench see you talking to Rose first. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, that, it is. And you learned that early on. I right? learned that early on, yes. It's the dynamics kind of, of the room, like how to get the best stuff. Exactly. So you had all these different personalities and, and tremendous, tremendous athletic abilities. Um, and then you had, like you mentioned, Sparky Anderson was kind of the zookeeper. Uh, how did what made Sparky the right manager for that team? He knew how to handle those egos, and he knew how. You know, you always hear that uh, managers say, "I treat everybody the same way." Uh, not Sparky; he would admit it. Uh, he would say that uh, uh, Bench and Rose and Morgan and Perez uh, earned his respect that they could do pretty much whatever they wanted to do. But he would say the rest of you guys. Uh, you play by my rules, but uh, mm. these other guys have earned by the respect that uh, they can go about their business pretty much the way they want to. Yeah, Red Auerbach used to do that with the Celtics with right. Bill Russell. If yep. Bill Russell didn't want to practice, Bill Russell got to sit and watch practice because he's Bill Russell. <laughs> yeah. Sparky was an interesting guy to deal with. Uh, I can remember uh, during the 75 World Series, I was sitting in his office one day <clears throat> and we were, uh, there were about seven or eight writers in there, and a writer asked him a question. And Sparky answered the question, and, and that pack of writers left, and I stayed in. And another pack came in, and during the course of uh, the interview, uh, one of the writers asked Sparky the same question that another writer in the other pack had asked. And uh, Sparky gave him a totally opposite answer. So when those guys left, I said, Sparky, you told one guy one thing, and you told another guy the exact opposite. And Sparky said, well, you can't give everybody the same story. <laughs> he was trying to look out for people. <laughs> looking out for the writers. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you said that's another story, but tell us the story. How did the Big Red Machine come about? Well, it was I, was, I wasn't even a, a beat writer then. I was a backup writer to Jim Ferguson, and it was uh, uh, maybe 1968 or 69. And... Uh, the Reds uh, had come from behind uh, like 8-2 to two and beat the Dodgers 9-8 to eight late in the game. And I went in the clubhouse, and uh, Lee May was screaming, we're a machine, we're just a machine. And I thought, hey, that's pretty cool. So I went back up uh, to the press box, and uh, I wrote in my story that they were a machine. And then I thought, well, let's, you know, let's color it up a little bit, or the Reds just make it the big red machine. And uh, I wrote it, and uh, it... Uh, uh, kind of uh, caught on, and uh, I wish I had to put a trademark on it. We, you and I, wouldn't be talking today. No, we'd be out at some island smoking yes, our cigars together absolutely. and just chilling, right? Yes, because absolutely. I would have been right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> so in '75, that World Series—that's the classic, classic World Series—that, in many respects, kind of rejuvenated baseball as the national pastime. 
It was a seven-game series, Cincinnati against Boston, back and forth. What are your memories as a writer covering one of the classic World Series of all time? Well, the first thing was I'd never been to Fenway Park. And uh, uh, before the first game of the World Series, the Reds went out to Fenway Park to uh, work out. And uh, I walked into the stadium and I went into the stands and uh, came up a ramp on the first base side and uh, walked out of the portal and looked at the green monster and it, just, it took my breath away. You hear about the green monster, but you have to see it to see how awesome it is. So uh, Yeah, I, I remember I covered a series uh, up in Boston. I did the same thing. Actually, yeah. you could walk to the top of it. Yes. And I did that just because I, I could not believe how big this wall was and how close it was to home plate. Yeah, I did the same thing. Uh, just, uh, just an awesome, awesome sight. You hear so much about it until you see it, you can't, uh, you can't believe it. But... Uh, yeah, that was uh, uh, an unbelievable World Series. Uh, one of the highlights of my career was getting to cover that. Uh, of course, uh, Carlton Fisk hit the famous uh, home run in nineteen or in a, in the twelfth inning uh, of Game Six and uh, to win the game. And a few years later, uh, the History Channel did a feature on uh, baseball writers, and they were kind enough to uh, include me. And they said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take uh, one of your famous stories, and we're going to have you read the lead, and we're going to show what it's all about. We're going to show uh, uh, what you're writing about on the screen. And I thought, and they want, wanted me to do the Game 6 of the 1975 World Series. Well, I was only two years on the beat. And I thought, oh, my God, I hope I, I, hope I got this right. So uh, they read my lead and showed Carlton Fisk hitting the home run and jumping up in the air and waving it to stay fair and all that. And uh, I, I was pretty proud of it uh, after it got on the air because I, I think I nailed it. I don't remember. <laughs> remember, remember 25,000 stories. Come on, give me a break here. <laughs> so the Reds, the Reds come back and win the next night in Game 7. I wanted to ask you as a writer what kind of tension there is in Game 7 of a World Series in a game that's kind of going back and forth. There's ebbs and flows. It's on deadline. What was it like, not just that Game 7, but just covering a moment where there's you know, history unfolding right in front of you. Yeah, well, believe it or not, I love those moments. Uh, I, I really didn't feel any tension. It was like uh, uh, when Pete Rose got his uh, hit to pass Ty Cobb. Uh, you know, I was just uh, anxious to get, get at the typewriter or the computer now. It was a typewriter. My grandson doesn't know what a typewriter is. but uh, I thought it was a stone tablet. Yeah, right. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> uh, that's what I used to hammer and chisel back when I was covering Harry Wright. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I enjoy the moment, uh, as, as, you might, uh, as you might say. So uh, uh, writing about Game 6 uh, was a whole lot of fun. And writing about Game 7 was a whole lot of fun. And if you ask people in Boston after Game 6, they think the Red Sox won the World Series. You never uh, hear about Game 7 when the Reds came back to win it. Oh, yeah, I think most of the nation thinks Carlton yeah. Fisk Homer won yeah, the World, won the World Series. Series. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you certainly had great moments to cover the next year in 76 uh, with that team, the grade eight lineup. They end up, the Reds end up sweeping the postseason, the Phillies in three straight, the Yankees in four straight. Did you realize at the time just how special that team was? No, that's what I said. I, did. I thought this was how it was going to be all the time. Uh, I was with these guys every day. Uh, it's not like it is now. Back back then, uh, 
We traveled with the team. I was on the team charter, uh, rode the bus back and forth to the ballpark. Got to know these guys really, really personally. And we don't get that these days. Uh, we don't travel with them. Uh, they uh, limit access to the clubhouse now to about 45 minutes. Uh, back uh, in the 76 uh, era, I could get to the ballpark at 2 o'clock if I wanted to for a night game, go in the clubhouse and spend uh, five hours with those guys. And uh, you can't do that wow. now. So uh, that's what made uh, uh, those times so special was you really got to know the guys. Plus, they didn't uh, make as much money as they do now, and you could actually go out to eat with them once in a while and really get to know them. But uh, uh, those days are gone. What player did you like the most in terms of just dealing with and getting to know as a person uh, from that era, that 76, uh, 75, 76 Reds? Who, who stands out in Blitz, your mind? Just if- Believe it or not, George Foster. Uh, he and I remain close friends to these day to this day. And uh, as I said, he was a tough guy to interview at times, but I got to know him very well. Became uh, very friendly with him, and uh, uh, he was probably, probably the most underrated player on the Big Red Machine. I mean, in 1977, he hit 52 home runs and uh, was the MVP. But the Reds didn't win, so. Uh, uh, you know, he wasn't recognized as much as uh, I thought he should be. Uh, he once uh, uh, Sparky put him in the lineup and moved Pete Rose from uh, left field to third base. That's when the uh, big red machine really started to operate. So uh, uh, George was a little bit different, and uh, uh, he would say some strange things at times. But uh, uh, I really enjoyed uh, 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 being around him. I'll never forget in. Uh, spring training one year uh, we used to sit down the left field line uh, in our uh, without our shirts on to get our suntans at old Tampa Tampa <laughs> now, there's Stadium. an image there's wait a minute hold image. on a yeah. second yeah. hold well, on imagine we're gonna me. stop this show right yeah. now <laughs> imagine me and uh, Earl Lawson and Bob Herzl and Paul and Paul Meyer uh, sitting in the left field bleachers at uh, Al Lopez uh, field with our shirts off uh, getting our suntans that's how we covered spring training so it, it was uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was so uh, 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 easy going that uh, I would climb over the fence between innings and get a baseball and get one of the uh, pitcher's left-handed gloves and, and play catch with the left fielder to warm him up. Well, <laughs> really? Yes. Uh, and uh, one day I took a baseball and I signed my autograph on it and I, and I threw it out to George Foster. And uh, Foster uh, must have seen me signing the baseball because he took it and looked at it and turned around and threw it over the left field wall. Hey, do you think getting to know guys with that much time and access, how did it help you as a reporter when you were covering the team? I mean, you weren't friends. You were right. a journalist. Right. And you had and, – and Lord knows that, you know, you broke stories that they weren't happy with. Absolutely. But, but how do you feel getting to know the guys – helped you as a journalist? I think it helps immensely that they, they know you, uh, they know your personality, uh, they know whether to trust you or not to trust you, and hopefully I built trust in all of them and that I could go up and, and ask them pretty much anything. And that's another thing uh, that we miss these days. Uh, they don't get to know you and you don't get to know them uh, as much as you'd like to. And uh, You know how to approach them, you know what questions to ask, and uh, it, it to me, it helped immensely. You know, you covered the Big Red Machine when it was in full throttle, 
success. And like you said, hey, this is going to be the way it's always right. going to be with the winning world championship, Hall of Fame players. But then the machine started being dismantled, and Perez was traded, Rose left for Philadelphia, Sparky was fired. So you go from the great, great team to a team that really starts to struggle. Um, what was it like to cover a bad baseball team on a day-to-day basis? Uh, it was not as much fun, uh, mainly because uh, you like the team that you cover to win, not because you're a fan or uh, are rooting for them, but uh, people read your stories more uh, if uh, you're covering a winning team. Uh, a losing team like the 82 Reds that lost 101 games, uh, people don't care and they don't want to read about uh, how bad they are. So uh, uh, as far as cover them, covering them, it didn't change much except that uh, you, you were writing more uh, games about the uh, L's and W's. Right. Uh, so that 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 to me was uh, the main difference. I mentioned Sparky being fired after the, in '78. It's only two years after winning consecutive championships. Why was Sparky Anderson fired? Well, the story I heard, and by the way, I was lucky enough to hear about that and uh, broke the story that he was uh, going to be fired. Uh, the team was uh, in Japan. And by that time, Dick Wagner, uh, the hatchet man of all time, uh, was uh, the general manager. And uh, some people thought it was because uh, uh, Wagner uh, uh, wanted the spotlight and thought Sparky's uh, uh, image was uh, too good. But uh, the story I heard uh, when they uh, uh, went to Japan, uh, Dick Wagner told Sparky that he had to fire a couple of his coaches. And... uh, Sparky, of course, didn't want to do that. And Sparky uh, told Dick, uh, if you're going to fire two of my coaches, you might as well fire me too. And Wagner accommodated him. Wow. Think about that. I know. One of the all-time great managers who went on to win a world championship in the American League with the Tigers. A a managerial icon, uh, you know, especially in Cincinnati, even though uh, uh, when he was hired, uh, one of the Cincinnati papers said, Sparky who? Because yeah, uh, right, in 1970, yeah. Right, nobody knew who he was, and uh, uh, he turned out to be, uh, you know, an unbelievable manager and uh, uh, got himself fired. Well, we talked about getting to know these guys uh, because you had such great access back in those days. Um, one of the guys that you've had an interesting, you had an interesting relationship with was is Joe Morgan. Uh, in 1979, when the players, you know, Rose is gone, Perez is gone, Sparky's gone. I think you wrote a column saying it's time to move on and, and Joe Morgan should be traded. Um, how was that received? That that was uh, funny that you bring that up because when we were talking about uh, Sparky getting fired, I was thinking about Joe Morgan uh, as we talked. Uh, it was uh, 1979, and uh, you know they were breaking up the big red machine, as you said. Perez had been tired. Uh, uh, Perez had been traded, and uh, Ken Griffey Jr. was gone to the Yankees. Gullet was gone to the Yankees. Rose was gone. Uh, both the only ones left were uh, Morgan and uh, Benson. Concept. And uh, I wrote a column uh, not saying that he should be traded. Uh, It was uh, his free agent year, and he had made it clear that he was going to leave. So I wrote a column saying it was time to leave. I did not criticize him. I did not say he wasn't a great player. You know, I said he was still a great player, but he didn't fit what the Reds were doing anymore, and it was, you know, time for him to move on. Well, I went into the clubhouse the next day. Uh, that's one thing you got to do as a baseball writer or any kind of writer. If you write a controversial story, don't hide. You know, show up, face the music. So I 
walked in, walked right over to Joe, and he stuck his finger in my face and said, don't ever try to talk to me again. Okay, all right, so I didn't. So uh, Joe and I didn't talk for 35 years. Wow. Uh, yes. <laughs> he came back as a broadcaster later with the Reds, and we played doubles tennis against each other. We never spoke. Uh, we were— Not at all? Wait a minute. You're playing never, tennis against Joe Morgan, and yes, you're not even speaking to each speak, other? No. I think we were more concentrating on trying to hit each other with overheads. But uh, <laughs> we were on uh, elevators by ourselves together. We would both stand like this. Straight ahead, not look at each other. Uh, standing next to each other at the urinals in the bathroom, don't talk. Uh, and it went on that way for 35 years. When I went into uh, uh, the Hall of Fame on induction weekend, I was standing in front of the Otisago Hotel with my family, my mother, my father, uh, uh, my wife, and my brothers and sisters. And this white Cadillac limousine pulls up. Joe Morgan gets out. And I'm standing up on the steps, and Joe comes start up the steps. He spoke to my mother. He spoke to my father. He spoke to my wife, my sisters, my brothers. And I thought, oh, okay, this is going to be great. We're going to make up. By the time he got to me, he pretty much elbowed me in the chest as he walked by and didn't say a word. Wow. So, uh, so uh, it continued. And about uh, four or five years ago, Joe is back with the Reds as a consultant, and he comes into the clubhouse every once in a while. It was a Sunday morning. I'm there early, and I'm standing watching the TV because there's nobody else in the clubhouse, and Joe walks in. And I just kind of looked over my shoulder and then started watching TV, and all of a sudden I heard, hey, Hal, hey, Hal. And I thought, there's nobody else in here. It's got to be Joe. I turned around and he walked over and he stuck out his hand and he said, I just want to apologize. He said, I was very young at the time, did some dumb things, and uh, uh, I was very childish. And I said, Joe, I was just as childish as you were. I said, I never lost respect for you as a player, uh, but uh, you told me not to speak to you. I honored that, uh, uh, but it was a very childish thing, and I'm very happy that uh, we were able to make up. And I'm I'm uh, so glad that we did because, uh, you know, he passed away uh, not too long ago. And uh, uh, I would have hated uh, to him leave us like that and uh, not speak to him for over 35 years. Wow, that is amazing. I, I mean, know. think about this. I mean, three decades plus of just staring at each other yeah, exactly. or looking away. It's ignoring, yeah, ignoring each other. Yeah, yeah. One of the all-time great players. And then, the, and then when he passed... What did it mean to you when he, when he when he died a few years ago? Because you had this interesting relationship all those years. Yeah, I wrote a column uh, pretty much saying everything that I just told you, and uh, uh, people were amazed, of course, that uh, two people uh, who uh, had contact with each other so much would go 35 years without speaking. But uh, uh, that's uh, that's the way it was, and that's the one thing that I respected about Johnny Bench. Uh, I wrote several things that he did not like, and he would point that out to me the next day and uh, let me know he wasn't happy with it. But then he would forget about it uh, hmm. and uh, everything would be fine. Uh, 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 when Johnny uh, knees got bad and he uh, decided to play third base, uh, it was awful. He had a terrible yeah. time playing third base. And uh, spring training, he made a whole lot of errors. And uh, I wrote a column saying that Johnny Bench playing third base uh, was uh, like doing an imitation of a croquet wicket. 
Oh, and, oh and, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He did not like that a whole lot. But then he I don't let, think so. He let me know about that the next day, and then and then he forgot about it. So you came back the next day and wrote that he should be using a skillet instead of a glove. <laughs> I know that he was using a skillet. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, you, you mentioned Bench in those early 80s and the sight of the greatest catcher ever trying to play third base is an unfortunate memory for Reds fans because that kind of sums up what that early 80s era exactly. of Reds was like. They yeah. were losing 100 games. And, and there was a guy who was a manager in 1984. I want to ask you about this guy. <laughs> By the name of Vern Rapp. Tell me about Vern Rapp, the manager of the Reds in 1984. Well, Vern Rapp was uh, uh, probably a guy who should have been coaching a high school team because he uh, he hung a whole bunch of signs in the clubhouse like you would see in a high school football uh, locker room, like uh, when in doubt, slide, uh, you know, uh, uh, things of that, you know, a bunch of sayings, and the players just laughed Sounds at Sounds like Ted Lasso. Come on. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And, you know, the players kind of laughed at him, and uh, we were in Montreal one day, and uh, the team had— uh, was struggling, but he had won about two or three games in a row. And he looks at me and he said, Hal, we're in the airport. Hal, we're going to win this thing. And I thought, yeah, what year would that be? But uh, <laughs> that, he, he was not a good manager. He was one of the all-time worst. Well, he was fired in an interesting way. Tell us how Vern Rapp was fired. Yeah, uh, we were in St. Louis, and uh, I had heard some rumors. And uh, so I called uh, one of the Williams brothers who owned the Reds at the time. He uh, proceeded to say, you know, I was asking about Vern, and he said, well, uh, Vern has been fired. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. Well, I looked down on the field, and Vern is standing behind the batting cage, leaning on the cage, watching batting practice. So I hung up the phone, and I went downstairs to the onto the field, walked up to the uh, batting cage next to Vern, and I looked at him and said, hey, uh, Vern, I'm sorry to hear that you have been fired. And he turned around and looked and said, what? And uh, <laughs> that's when I learned that he hadn't been told yet, and I got to, uh, to carry the message to him. I probably uh, the only baseball writer in history that got to tell the manager that he was fired. But uh, <laughs> he took off and headed into the dugout, called the team off the field, and and held a meeting. And I was told by Tom Browning and Ron Oster that uh, uh, he stood in front of him and said, "Well, it doesn't look good for me, but I'm still the manager right now, and uh, uh, so you're still playing for me as until I hear." Well, he heard about uh, 10 minutes later, I guess, but uh, Browning and Oster said they were back in the back of the room snickering. He sounds like Captain Smith on the Titanic. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Doesn't right. look good for me. No, we're, <laughs> uh, no, we're just taking on a little ice. Well, it looked much better for the Reds because Vern Rapp was fired, and who comes back to town but Pete Rose as a player manager. When he came back in 84... That city was just on fire with excitement, right? What was it like the night that Pete came back as a player manager? Oh, it was uh, it was electric. The uh, stands were filled. The place was going crazy. And then uh, uh, Pete hits a double, and uh, the ball gets away from the center fielder, and he goes into third base with a head-first slide. And uh, that's when you know Pete Rose is back. You know the uh, uh, the the head-first slide, which uh, was always part of, of Pete and. Uh, his first time up, he does something like that, and uh, everybody thought uh, happy days are here again. Yeah, because a year later, at age 44, on September 11th, 1985, he hits a single off Eric Shaw, the 
San Diego Padres hit 41-92 to break Ty Cobb's record. That that game must stand out. Now tell us what that night was like for for everybody, especially for the writers in the press box. Yeah, one thing that uh, I'll never forget about the writers in the press box is, uh, you know, uh, there's no cheering in the press box. You know, Jerry Holtzman, the uh, famous baseball writer from Chicago, wrote a book called No Cheering in the Press Box. Uh, uh, that's kind of uh, uh, the golden rule. That, uh, you don't. Yeah, cheer yeah I, in I the must press point box. out there's no there's no cheering in the press box, but there is jeering in the much, press box. Much jeering and uh, yeah, much grumbling and uh, and moaning and groaning exactly but uh, when uh, Pete got uh, f- uh, 4192 it was amazing all the writers in the uh, press box stood up and applauded I've never seen that before and never seen it again it, it was just absolutely amazing and uh, then uh, uh, everything uh, on the field rose pointing up to the sky said he saw his father up there and uh, Pete Jr. was there in a uniform and ran out on the field and uh, gave his dad a hug and uh, Steve Garvey of the San Diego Padres, the first baseman, was standing up plotting in his glove. Uh, it was just uh, an awesome thing, one of the highlights of my career to get to cover that game. What did it mean to you? Because you had known Pete forever. Like you said, he would fill up your notebook. You yeah. have covered that guy forever. What, what did that moment mean to you yeah, to see that because, unfold? It was great because, uh, you know, it, uh, Pete was a great friend. Uh, you know, uh, a guy that you could talk to about anything at any time. And uh, like I say, fill up your notebook with great quotes, very introspective, uh, uh, you know, street smarts, uh, uh, knew everything you wanted to know about baseball, he could tell you. And uh, to see him do that, uh, yeah, that was very, very, very special. But then in a Shakespearean turn, (laughs) four years later, Pete's the manager of the Reds, he gets summoned to New York from spring training in 1989. What did you think was going to, what did you think that was all about? Pete's leaving to go to New York. Well, What's that? that day, spring training had just begun, and Pete is standing on one of the fields, uh, uh, by the, uh, one of the infields, uh, by himself. And it's early in the morning, and uh, I walked over to him and started a conversation. He said, I'm not going to be here for the next couple of days. And I said, Why is that? And he says, well, the commissioner wants me to come to New, to New York. He wants to ask my opinion on a few things. Mm. And I thought, how strange is that? Why would the commissioner call a manager during spring training to New York to ask his opinion on a few things? Why couldn't he just do it by telephone? Well, it turns out that, you know, Pete was uh, called to New York to ask about his uh is uh, gambling uh, on baseball, and uh, uh, the rest is history. But I found that very strange. That you know, that's that's what he said to me that day. So all hell breaks loose that year in 1989, and you're pulling double duty because you're covering the team and the scandal. You're breaking stories about Pete's uh, betting scandal. You're also trying to cover the team. What was 1989 like for you as a reporter? That was the toughest year of my career because, uh, you know, I uh, I loved Pete so much and uh, respected him so much. And to have this happen, and uh, as you say, I had to uh, cover the game. And I also had to, we had about five people doing investigative work on it from the paper, but I was the front guy. And I had to take all the questions to him every day uh, ask him about uh, the gambling allegations. And, of course, he denied, 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 and uh, kept uh, writing the stories and asking the questions. And uh, then uh, the day that uh, he got uh, banned from baseball, it became uh, kill the messenger. Uh, like Morgan, uh, he uh, did not speak to me for uh, several years. 
How many years? Uh, let's see, he was banned in 89, so I would say about 2008. And that is an interesting story. Uh, my wife and I were in Las Vegas in 2008, and uh, we were walking uh, uh, past some shops at Caesars Palace, and Pete was in one of the memorabilia shops signing autographs. And, uh, of course, for like $50 a pop or whatever. But anyway, uh, my wife, uh, Nadine, sees him in there and says, there's Pete Rose. Why don't you go in and say hello? And I said, are you kidding me? You want to start a riot? And she said, you go in there and say hello. I said, he hates my guts. So she shoved me in the door. And Pete saw me, and he jumped up and uh, stuck out his hand, uh, shook my hand. And uh, there was a photographer there, and he uh, uh, had his uh, a picture taken of us together and uh, had it uh, developed right away, put it in a leather case, and signed it to a great Hall of Famer from the hit King, Pete Rose. And I, I'm astounded to this day uh, hmm. that, uh, that that's the way that we sort of made up. Uh, hmm. That was during the All-Star break. And a couple of days later, uh, the season resumed, and we go to New York. And I walk into the uh, clubhouse in New York, and uh, Doc Kremchek, the team doctor who is a good friend of Pete, walks up to me and says, hey, I, I hear you saw Pete Rose in Las Vegas. And I said, how in the hell do you know that? I, I've never, I haven't told anybody yet. And he said, well, Pete called me. And he said, hey, guess who stopped in to see me uh, in Vegas uh, uh, and Doc said, who? And he said, Hal McCoy. And I thought he hated my guts. Oh, wow. <laughs> used the same term that I had used to my wife. So, uh, yeah, that's how we made up. And uh, uh, we we talk uh, uh, quite often uh, these days. I got his phone number and my cell phone. And, uh, uh, you know, he's willing to chat about anything at any time. That's amazing that you both thought the same thing yeah, all those exactly, years. Exactly, exactly. You know, I think maybe in the end, maybe Pete understood that you were doing your job and you were right. I think he did. Uh, once he once he finally uh, admitted that he bet on baseball, I think he's tried to mend a whole lot of fences. And uh, fortunately, uh, my fence was one of them that he mended. Well, that's one of the good things about getting older. Not that you're old, not that I'm old, but we're just getting older, Hal. <laughs> yeah, 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 81 times for me. <laughs> so we're getting older, but in 1990, there was a, a year that, that makes me feel young when I think about it because I was fortunate enough to be around that team, the Cincinnati Reds, quite a bit. I was not the beat writer, but I got to cover a lot of the baseball that year uh, as a young guy, and that team really comes out of nowhere. The year after the Rose tragedy, you have the Reds winning the, the World Series, and what a magical year that was. A couple guys I wanted to ask you about in particular. One is Eric Davis. I think you once said that Eric is your all-time favorite player. Is that right? And yes. why? Eric is my all-time favorite player because he was such a great player, uh, a five-tool player. Probably would have made the Hall of Fame, but he had this uh, propensity for running into brick walls and uh, making diving catches and, and hurting himself. So a lot of his career was uh, spent on the DL, but he was such a great player. But not only that, he was such a, a great person and still is. We remain friends to this day. And uh, well, I'll take my, uh, a couple of my sons to spring training. And uh, my uh, oldest son, uh, went to spring training one year and Eric kind of took him aside. I didn't ask him to, didn't say anything, but Eric would play catch with him 
and uh, tease him and uh, recognize that he was around. Uh, my son was about uh, 11 or 12 years old then, and Eric gave him uh, a, a big uh, black bat. And uh, we came home after spring training, and I got to, on a day off, got to go watch my son play a little league game. And uh, I see him going up to home plate, and he's dragging this huge black bat behind him. He's 12 years old, and he's going to use Eric Davis's bat in the game. So mm. I kind of kind of laughed at that and uh, I told him, you know, you better use a bat your own size. But uh, uh, the other thing about uh, Eric is uh, the one story out of those 25,000 baseball stories that I've written that I regret writing involved Eric Davis. Uh, there was a, uh, a rumor uh, going around that the Reds were going to trade Davis and that uh, the Philadelphia Phillies were interested. Well, I had a couple of contacts with the Phillies, and I, I called them, and uh, one of them told me, well, that the, the Phillies would never trade for Eric Davis because uh, we hear he's on drugs. So uh, rather than going back to Eric, as I should have, I immediately sat down and wrote a column and mentioned that uh, this trade probably won't happen because the Phillies believe that uh, Davis is using drugs. Well, uh, once again, I go to the clubhouse the next day. Uh, we were in San Diego, and he calls me over, very calm, and said, Hal, I'm very disappointed in you. He said, I would never use drugs. I grew up in South Central L.A., saw what drugs could do to people. I've never touched them in my life and never will. And, uh, uh, of course, I, I thought about this big then. And uh, the interesting thing was that uh, Eric wrote a, a book about his career uh, after he was uh, finished. And he mentioned me in his book three or four times and never met, never once mentioned that terrible story that I wrote about him. And so that's mm. kind of a class act guy he is. Yeah. I think that shows the respect that he had for, you know, for you to, to say, look, I, you screwed this up, yeah. but you know, I won't hold like it I'm, against you. Yeah. yeah not for yeah. 35 years. No, no, no. <laughs> but Eric, I, I agree with you. Eric uh, was really a kind of a special guy behind the scenes, uh, a real leader. Yes. And that team had some characters, the nasty boys. <laughs> but the, the guy I wanted to ask you about was the manager of that team, Lou Piniella. Uh, in my years of covering sports, there's very few people that I've come across like Lou. How would you sum up what it was like to cover Lou Piniella, the manager? Outstanding. I loved covering Lou Piniella. Uh, the team was very special, but the manager was uh, just a great guy to cover. And probably I got closer to him than any manager I, I ever covered, with maybe the uh, exception of Jack McKee, and I got pretty close to. But, uh, yeah, Lou and I got very close. I'll, I'll never forget the one of the first days of spring training in uh, 1990. He called me into his office, and he said, How you've been uh, covering this team in baseball for a long time. What does this team need to get over the top? And uh, I'm kind of taken aback. Uh, no manager has ever asked me my opinion on anything. And I told him, I think the number one thing this team needs is a leadoff hitter. There's no really established leadoff hitter. Uh, so he, he didn't say anything, but uh, he put Barry Larkin in the leadoff spot. And uh, about halfway through the season, I went into his office one day and he said, Al, you are absolutely right. That's what this team needed, a leadoff hitter. So... Uh, that made me feel pretty good that uh, a manager of uh, of, uh, of his skill would uh, think to ask a, a lowly writer their opinion on the team and then take the advice and uh, and let him know that uh, he appreciated it. Yeah, I always remember Lou liked writers. He yeah. liked talking oh, to he writers. Did he didn't like the, he didn't like the TV guys though, right? No, no, he did not like the TV guys, but he uh, he he did like the writers. And uh, uh, there was the uh, 
the famous uh, Lou Pinella Rob Dibble fight. Uh, I started that fight. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, tell us, spill the beans on this. Well, Rob Dibble, of course, one of being one of the nasty boys, uh, did not pitch in one game when it was evident that uh, uh, he should have been used. So uh, I asked Lou, uh, why didn't you use Dibble in that situation? And he said, well, before the game, Dibble told me he had some tightness in his elbow. I said, oh, okay. So I went out to Dibble and I said, what's wrong with your elbow? And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, your manager just said you didn't pitch because you had some tightness in your elbow. And he said, well, the manager's a liar. <laughs> so I went back into Lou and I said, hey, Lou, your uh, closer just called you a liar. And Lou <laughs> jumped up out of his desk, pinned me against the wall as he ran out the door, jumped on Dibble, and the fight was on, and I had a great story. <laughs> It was like pro wrestling in the locker room. <laughs> it was, yeah. Tim Belcher broke broke it up rather quickly, but uh, it, it was it was very funny to see Lou jump on Dibble's back. Well, there's there are moments with Lou that are just so humorous in my own memory that um, you know just the way that he could be his personality. He could be hot and cold. Yep. He could blow up at you, but he could also just have a great conversation with you. He was just 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 a character to yeah. deal with. Yeah. Well, he loved horse racing, and uh, he would go to the track often and uh, he would invite me to go go with him and uh, his last year in Cincinnati was in September and Lou wanted a contract extension and uh, Marge Schott uh, would not give it to him, would not even talk to him about an extension so it's uh, late September towards the end of the season and we're in San Diego and on a Friday night Lou says to me, uh, hey Al you have a rental car don't you? I said yeah he said well they're running at Del Mar Let's go out to the track Saturday afternoon and catch a few races before Saturday night's game. I said, okay, fine. So we went to the track, and, and Lou's hot. He hits like the first three or four races, and he's uh, cashing in his tickets, and I'm looking at my watch, and it's getting time for you know uh, to get to the ballpark. And I, I said to Lou, hey, we better get going. Oh, a couple more races, a couple more races. So uh, do a couple more races, and uh, I'm looking, and uh, I said, Lou, do you have, uh, have you sent a lineup card or anything? No. I said, well, it's almost time for batting practice. Oh, okay, let's go. So we get in the car, and we're heading down the interstate, and I'm looking at my watch again, and it's batting practice time. I said, Lou, I said, they're probably doing batting practice, and they don't even have a lineup card. And he said, ah, oh, hell, I don't care. I'm not coming back to the tier anyway. So I had, hmm. a, I had another great story. Yeah, right. <laughs> it pays to go to the track with the manager. It pays to go to the track with Sweet Lou. <laughs> so, Hal, there's a lot of laughter behind the scenes with a guy like Lou Pinella, and sometimes, you know, being a sports writer, it's just, just crazy humorous. But there are also times when, you know, it's not easy, even sometimes personally. And I know in 2001 your life started to change um, personally and professionally. Tell us about what happened in 2001. Well, late in the 2001 season, we were in uh, St. Louis, and it was the last game of a road trip. And I was walking uh, in the press box toward my seat, and uh, something uh, seemed like got in my eye, like when you get something in your eye and you can rub it out. Uh, well, I kept rubbing it, trying to get it out. It, it didn't go away. So I uh, went home, uh, and the next morning I woke up, and it was, it was still... Uh, that way. So uh, my wife, Nadine, uh, took me to the uh, uh, doctor's office, to the uh, eye doctor, and he examined me. He got very quiet, 
And uh, finally, uh, he said, uh, I got some good news and some bad news. And I said, well, what's the bad news? And he said, you've had a stroke in your optic nerve in your right eye. There's no treatment. Uh, can't do anything about it. It, uh, it will not get better. And I said, well, what's the good news? And he said, the good news is that it, uh, uh, only 15% of the time does it happen in both eyes. Uh, I said, okay, that's pretty good odds. So for the next few months, uh, I still drove a car. Uh, my left eye took over. I still played tennis uh, at a decent level. Uh, but then uh, on uh, January 23rd, uh, uh, 2002, uh, I woke up and uh, I had the same thing in my left eye. And I went downstairs and I told my wife, uh, uh, honey, I think I just became the, the, the big 15 percenter. I, I've got it in both eyes. Everything was dark and fuzzy and uh, I, I couldn't make out faces. And uh, I went to my sports editor and I said, I'm not going to be able to cover baseball anymore. You know, I, I can't see very well. And he said, no, 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 no. You're going to spring training. You're going to try it. You see uh, how it works out. So I went to spring training in Sarasota and, uh, uh, first day I, uh, took a cab and went to the clubhouse <clears throat> and I walked in, uh, to the clubhouse and stood by the door and I looked around and the room was very dark and fuzzy and, uh, I couldn't see faces. I couldn't recognize, uh, you know, guys that I've known for years. And, uh, Aaron Boone was the third baseman for the Reds at the time. And I guess he saw my uh, consternation and uh, my perplexity standing, looking around and he came over to me and said, what's wrong? And I said, uh, you're probably seeing me for the last time. I'm going to quit. I can't do this job. And he said, why? And I told him. He grabbed me by the elbow and uh, took me over to his uh, seat and said, you sit down. So I sat down. He said, I don't ever want to hear you say the word quit again. And he said, you love your job. You're good at your job. Everybody in this room will help you. And uh, he was right. He turned me around that day. I would have quit. I would have walked out and gone home. Uh, instead, here it is uh, 19 years later, and I'm, I'm still doing a job that I, that I uh, love so much. And uh, so many people have uh, helped me along the way. Uh, but, of course, uh, uh, Aaron Boone made me pay. He told people he caught me co uh, talking to a Coke machine. But uh, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just going to say Aaron Boone is not a Hall of Famer. He was a, he was a very good player, but not a Hall of Famer. But uh, when his name came up on the ballot, uh, I'm very serious about my Hall of Fame ballot. Uh, but I, I could not resist. He got one. Uh, he got one vote for the Hall of Fame, and that came from me because to me he's a Hall of Famer uh, for what he did for me. That's a, that's that's. I think that speaks to the type of relationship, again, the working relationship that you would develop with these players, that they would respect you enough to look out for you even as a person, to, you know, to say something to you, to encourage you like that. Yeah, um, that, that, you know, I wrote some stories that Aaron didn't like, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, to do that for me was pretty doggone special. How did you adapt? So that was in 2002, 2003. How did you adapt and, and enable you to continue to cover baseball and still write about the Reds even today. Yeah, you know, since that happened, I've never seen a home run leave the park, but I learned something in spring training that year. I was watching batting practice, and I was watching Ken Griffey Jr., and of course, he's hitting about every ball out of the ballpark, and I noticed something uh, while he was uh, batting. I noticed that when he swung and hit the ball, right away, he would look in the direction where the ball went. 
And I had never even noticed that before. So when I went back up to, to the press box, I kind of experimented and, and watched. And sure enough, every player, when they hit the ball, they looked in the direction that the ball was hit. So I would watch them when they hit the ball. I would see which way they were looking, and I would look that way. And if it was a home run, you could see the right fielder heading back to the wall and stop and looking up. I know it's a home run. So uh, that's the kind of things that uh, uh, after all the years I covered baseball that I never thought about. And, uh, you know, that, that helped me immensely. So the idea that little things matter, and that sometimes it's the little things, just people helping you, giving you a ride to the park or right. holding right. the door for you at the steps. or Yeah, yeah. Um, telling me, watch out for the curb. You know those uh, little yellow markers when there's a wet floor mm-hmm. uh, that they put down? I'm I'm drawn like a magnet to them. I kick over everyone. They, the airport concourse could be 20 feet wide, and if they have one on the floor, I'll kick it over. It's it's unbelievable because I have no depth perception. Uh, I have tunnel vision, and uh, uh, you know I I can't I have to when I walk I have to look down at the floor to to uh, make sure that uh, I don't trip over something. But uh, uh, it's you know, like. Like I say, it's uh, something that uh, you'd have to learn to adapt to. Well, the fact that you have and that you're still covering baseball, still writing about the Reds, um, I think speaks to your love of the game, your love of journalism, and just your sheer perseverance to do the job. It's not an easy job, and and you keep going back to the park when the Reds are in at home. And um, still... to me, it just speaks to the love of what you do, right? Absolutely. I, uh, like I say, I'm 81 years old. I, I don't need the money, uh, but uh, I love to write, and I love baseball, and uh, it keeps me active. Uh, I can't say it keeps me young because I am an old fart, but uh, I, I love doing uh, uh, what I do, and uh, people keep asking me, how long are you going to do this? And I say, I'm gonna, if they love me, I'm going to do it until my head hits the laptop. Hmm. You know, I think about the pep talk that Aaron Boone gave you, and I'm going to leave you with this. There's a pep talk in my own life that meant a lot to me. In 1990, I was in Chicago filling in for the beat writer, Jerry Krasnick, at the Cincinnati Post. And again, I'm just a kid. I don't know what the hell I'm doing. (laughs) It's a trade deadline. News is happening. I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm down on the field at Wrigley before the game, and I'm trying to talk to this pitcher, Jack Armstrong. And Jack starts walking. So I just keep walking with him. And he walks me all the way down the right field line <laughs> into the bullpen area. <laughs> I'm scribbling notes. I don't know. You know, I don't know these unwritten rules of baseball protocol. <laughs> and you must have watched this unfold. And you pulled me aside. And you just patiently explained that, hey, you're not supposed to go past first base. <laughs> That's just an area that you're not supposed to go to. And I thought, you know, he could have he could have done this in front of a lot of people and made a scene of it. But the fact that he pulled me aside and hushed tones just kind of <laughs> gave me a tip, meant a lot. And on that same trip, after a game, the Reds blew a game, which they rarely did that year. But we're in this cramped little office, and Lou Pinella's steaming. He's got a beer and a cigarette going, and he's ready to launch. And nobody is saying anything. So I said, I'll ask a question. And Lou just detonates on me, just blows up. And once again, I was rattled, but you pulled me aside, and you gave me a little pep talk. Nobody saw it. Nobody knows it except me. You gave me a pep talk. And that meant so much to me at a young age that a respected writer would 
encourage me and explain some things to me about what this job is all about. And I've never forgotten that. And I always wanted to tell you that, Hal. Well, I appreciate that. I don't recall doing either one of those things, but uh, I'm certainly glad I did because I knew you had a lot of talent and uh, you know, a very talented young man and uh, had a great future. And you know, you know, if I helped in any little way, that makes me feel good. But uh, that's what I tried to do with uh, with every young writer that came across, as I said, because of what Earl Lawson did for me. Well, I was lucky to have writers like you, Hal, kind of pull me under their wing and, you know, steer me right when I was wrong. And I'm lucky that you spent some time with us here on Press Box Access. It's been so great catching up and sharing stories about what a what a wonderful career you've had and still are having. And uh, I just want to thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. I can't believe the time is up already. It's been uh, been great times uh, reminiscing with you. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks, man. Thanks, Hal. Take care. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. Producer Bill Hoffman and our audio engineer, Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. I'm Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast.